I think God likes coffee because he yeah. brews. But I'm pump. Never mind. Praise God. We've been. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I am an amateur comedian. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes and our understanding this morning and help us to receive from your word like good soil receives the, the seed and it grows and prospers in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through, we do this uh, every so often in the, the church. We go through, we'll pick a book and we'll go through it verse by verse and uh, try and explain as much as we can. <clears throat> so we're up to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. So we'll start with verses 11 through 13. And uh, the writer writes, some Bible scholars believe Paul wrote it, others don't. Uh, irregardless, whoever wrote it, he wrote it to the Hebrews. And he begins this section by saying, about this. So, made me think and stop. Wait a minute. What is he, what's he talking about? This. What he had just spoken about in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, was the perfection of Jesus as our eternal high priest and the superiority of Jesus. Jesus is perfect theology. Can you say amen? He's perfect theology because in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily, the Bible says. So he's our high priest. We don't need to go to anybody else. You don't have to pray to anybody. You don't have to uh, go to a, a priest. And there's no longer a priesthood because Jesus is the high priest. And you can go directly to the throne of heaven through Jesus our Lord. He says, of this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Anybody ever read anything in the Scripture and you say, well, what in the world does that mean? It's hard to explain, hard to understand. Because, according to Mr. Dake, he claims that uh, the reason things are hard to explain is because some people are slow to grasp doctrines. Another reason is that a lot of people, and here speaking, this letter is written to the Jewish people, to the Hebrews, and a lot of people come from a religious background, and they have all this religious stuff in the back of their minds, or, or that they've been brought up and raised up, when I personally was raised up as a Catholic, and so I had all these ideas, but I started reading the scripture for myself, and come to understand that I was a sinner in need of salvation. As a matter of fact, it was Thanksgiving Day, 1981, almost 40 years ago, that I asked Jesus to come into my life and to be the Lord of my life. And that changed everything. And thank God he's not done with us. Can you say amen? amen? Hard to explain. He goes on to say, since you have become dull. And so this is not really an accusation or an insult that he's uh, putting out here. But what the trouble is, is that people have a religious background, and they, they, they have this when they bring it to uh, salvation experience, and uh, it takes a while for our brains, so to speak, to catch up with what God has done inside of us. Now, the high priest, according to the Jewish annotated New Testament, at the time of Christ, the genealogical lineage was not required. As a matter of fact, Herod the Great appointed six high priests. Under the law of Moses, you had to be a direct descendant of Aaron in order to be the high priest. But at the time of Jesus, it became 
a religious and political position. I mean, you know, God's not really interested in politics because politics is not the answer to the, to the world's problems. The answer to the world's problems is Jesus. Can you say amen? Although you should vote because your voice is, uh, your, your vote matters. We should vote for people that agree with our uh, values. Can you say amen? And we should not vote for people that are opposed to our values, our biblical values. In any event, uh, Jesus has a kingdom, a government. In Isaiah, it says, of the increase of his government and peace in the King James, there shall be no end. You could change the word government to kingdom. What does a kingdom have but one king? And that's Jesus, our Lord. It goes on to say in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, I mean, you know that we're supposed to be able to teach other people about the things of God and about Jesus. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Notice that he uses this phrase, the basic principles. And those are going to be explained in the next chapter. What are the basic principles of the oracles of God or the government of God? Or in other words, the Old Testament. Uh, it wasn't... Uh, uh, in the time of Jesus, when he walked on the earth, there was no New Testament, right? There was no New Testament. There was only the Old Testament. And so this letter, written early on after Jesus had gone into heaven, when he talks about the oracles of God, he's talking about the Old Testament. An interesting thing to note, in Acts chapter 21, verses 20 through 24, Paul visits Jerusalem and Paul, as we know, is the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. And uh, he gets to meet with James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the elders. And he's told that thousands of Jews, thousands of Jews believe. Remember the day of Pentecost? Or was it over 3,000 men received Jesus as their Savior? But it goes on to say, and this is probably why the writer writes that they're dull of hearing is because they are all zealous of the law. And Paul was accused of being opposed to the law and was accused of being and viewed as being a heretic because he was um, you know, dealing with the Gentiles and saying that the law is fulfilled and people were misunderstanding. Anybody ever been misunderstood? Oh, my goodness. Good God, people misunderstand you and it gets all blown out of proportion. And it got so blown out of proportion in Paul's life that they wanted to kill him. That's never happened to me. No one's ever wanted to kill me, but <laughs> I have been misunderstood, and I'm sure you have also. For everyone who lives, oh, excuse me, we have much to say. I'll read it over here. We have much to say. Ah, let's see if I can get the pointer to work. Ah, there it is. There's the red dot. The basic principles of the oracle of God, which will be explained in the next chapter. You need milk. Now, you cannot live just on milk. Amen? You have to have more than just milk. You need milk, not solid food. Solid food is good. If you want to be strengthened, you have to have uh, protein. You have to have a balanced diet in order to grow and be healthy. 
Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. And this word literally means they're inexperienced in the word of righteousness. Now I want to look especially at the word of righteousness for a moment. The word of righteousness. Romans chapter 1 verse 17 says that the gospel is the word of righteousness. It's the gospel that reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith or faith for faith. Or in other words, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is the explanation or the revelation of God's righteousness. Martin Luther, the uh, German monk who started the Protestant Reformation, before he got saved, he had a problem with the righteousness of God because he was following all the rules, trying to establish his own righteousness. And how many know our righteousness falls far short of God's requirements? So God, in his infinite wisdom, through the gospel, the good news of Jesus revealed the righteousness of God, which begins and ends in faith. Or in other words, it's received by faith instead of having to work for the righteousness of God. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, God imputes or imparts his righteousness to us. And we become right with God because of faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Hallelujah. Another funny thing I want to notice is that uh, this writer says the person who's un inexperienced is a child. I was listening to the radio the other day, and the preacher on the radio was, uh, mentioned uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 through 5. The disciples come to Jesus. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I thought a minute, that's the funniest thing. Why would they argue about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who cares? Obviously, the only person who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is Jesus. And they had Jesus right there with them. So why are they arguing, like, well, who's the second greatest, I guess? I don't know. But what does Jesus say? You know what? You guys are totally way off. He, say, he brings a little child, and he puts the child in the middle of them. He says, guess what? Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in heaven. And then goes on in Matthew chapter 19, verse 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So on the one hand, it's not a bad thing to be a child and have childlike faith. But on the other hand, we're expected to grow and mature. Verse 14, solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The New King James says, who those by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. This uh, word discern is the Greek word diakresis, which means to discriminate. You know, discrimination's a bad word in America now. You can't discriminate. Oh, my goodness, it's terrible to discriminate. But anybody remember uh, the phrase, this person has discriminating taste or discriminating palate? It used to be a good thing to be able to discriminate because it meant you could tell the difference between good and better and best. 
I don't remember the exact quote from C.H. Spurgeon, but he said discernment basically is being able to tell the difference between good enough and the best. God expects us to have that. Can you say amen? God expects us. In the NIV it says the mature people <clears throat> by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. You can look it up. I preached a whole sermon on training yourself. Remember, Blake was sitting in the front here, and I brought in a weight, and I went to toss it. Here, Blake, catch him. He, at the time, was uh, unable to do physical activity because of a surgery, and I was just kidding. I didn't expect him to pick that up. But you can't get big muscles by just sitting there wishing for them. Amen? You have to do some training. It's the same with being able to distinguish good from evil and choosing good over evil. The funny thing is, that's exactly what the devil told Eve in the garden. He says, if you eat that fruit, you'll be able to tell good and evil. Whereas before, all they knew was the goodness of God. Then, of course, Adam eats some, and uh, he blames God. He says, it's your fault, God, because you gave me this woman. And everybody knows that that's not true. God gave Adam and Eve and us a free will so we can choose. Listen to what Paul writes in, to the Philippians in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 of his letter. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern, there's that word, discern that you may be able to discern what is best and as a result may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What a promise. What a prayer. This is pastor's prayers for their people, that you may be filled, that you may abound more in love, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. How do we get this depth of insight? I believe it's through reading the Word of God, coming in here in the preaching of the gospel, and studying the Word of God. Because God wants us and God sees us as pure and blameless. Can you say amen? Hallelujah. What a wonderful thing to be able to realize that God sees us as pure and blameless. Though we may stumble and mess up, it doesn't mean that God is through with us. Hallelujah. So, we go on to chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. And Paul, or excuse me, the writer of the letter, delineates what is the foundational or elementary doctrine of Christ, the foundation that was mentioned in verse 12, the basic principles. Here's the basic principles. There's six of them, but they're actually coupled together as three sets. So the first set is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. They go together. They're two different things, but they go together Repentance and faith. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Paul the Apostle is in Athens and uh, he's, he's visiting Mars Hill and he sees all the statues to the unknown God. He begins to preach and tell the people there they, they, they love philosophy. So, um, 
and, and I studied philosophy, when I, Greek and Roman philosophy, when I was uh, in the seminary studying to be a, a priest, and I just got confused. Because all the answers that we really need are in the Bible. All the answers to life's problems, everything that you need to know in life is in the Bible. It, you didn't learn it in kindergarten, it's in the Bible. Can you say amen? On Mars Hill, Paul writes, or Paul's speaking, and it's recorded that he tells the people in part of his sermon, truly, these times of ignorance, of worshiping unknown gods, God overlooked. But now, say it with me, but now, but now, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Hallelujah. So repentance means turning from sin, but it also means turning to God. One of the elementary, so the first two, repentance and faith towards God, go together. Chapter 5, verse 12 is the basic principles. Hallelujah. Let us leave. Let us go on together. Jameson Fawcett and Brown's commentary uh, uh, elaborates that the writer uh, of this letter to the Hebrews is a Hebrew person talking to the Hebrew people saying, not telling them, you guys go, I'll stay here, or you guys stay here and I'll go ahead. He's saying, let's together, let's do this together. That's why it's important to come to church. Let's do this together. Can you say amen? Later on in the letter to the Hebrews, it says, let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but all the more as you see the day approaching. And we definitely can see the day approaching. Repentance towards God, faith towards God. Hallelujah. Let us go together. Verse 2 is the second part. Instruction about washings and laying on of hands. So this is the third and the fourth uh, item in the foundation. Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And everybody knows you have to build the foundation first before you build the rest of the building. This word washings. During the time that Jesus walked on the earth, John the Baptist was around and was baptizing people. So this word, washings, literally means baptism. It, if you look it up in the Greek, it is the Greek word baptism. Hallelujah. And the laying on of hands. Acts chapter 8, verse 17, Peter and John are sent up to Samaria from Jerusalem because Philip had gone there and preached the gospel and they had tremendous revival. There were people getting saved. And it says that Peter and John laid hands on the believers and they received the Holy Spirit. And if you remember the story, there's a, a gentleman there uh, named Simon the Magician. And uh, we'll, later on I'll tell you a little bit more about him. But keep in mind this guy. Goes on to say, the third set is the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. So here are two very, very important things because they speak about the future. Excuse me. There is going to be a resurrection from the dead. Hallelujah. We are going to get to see our loved ones who have gone on before us. Hallelujah. Can you say amen? That's good news. We're going to get to see them. However, there is something else called eternal judgment, which means that we need to take care how we live our lives 
in this life here. Resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. Notice Matthew Henry says that uh, the uh, writer goes on to say in verse 13, this we will do if God permits. This is a resolution or resolve on the part of ministers to uh, make be to continue working in a humble dependence on God. Ministers should teach and should go before the flock and go along with them. How many know no one has arrived yet? No one's there 100%. Paul says this one thing I do, the things behind I forget and press on toward the mark to the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. So in other words, me and Pastor Wayne cannot be put on a pedestal just because we come up and preach and minister. We are on the same path with everyone else. We're heading towards our eternal destiny. Because Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, this is such a wonderful promise from the Holy Spirit. It is God who's working in you and I both to will and to do His good pleasure. That's good news. Can you say amen? It's not all up to us because we could never do it on our own. Let's go on to chapter 6 and verses 4 through 6. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen these warning stickers. It's a yellow triangle with an exclamation pointing at us to get your attention. They have warning stickers all over uh, uh, equipment uh, and tools and stuff. Uh, you'll see them on your phone or your computer. But here's a warning. And this is very interesting because even though it says, it begins by saying it is impossible. Is it really impossible? Let's look at this closely. Impossible. This is, see my notes here. We'll get back to that just in a minute. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, this is a description of somebody that got saved and was going for God. They were enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Ghost, tasted in the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come. What a description. What a description. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's already in existence on earth. We're already participating. And there's people who have been enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come. Everybody, I don't know about you, but a lot of people like appetizers because it whets your appetite. So you taste the things of God. You want more. Can you say amen? But listen, there's that word enlightened. And this is where this uh, Simon the Magician comes in. He had been baptized. He had supposedly put his faith and trust in Jesus. And guess what he does? He's got this ego problem because he's been known as the great power of God before Philip the Evangelist came in there. And Peter and John come up and they're laying hands on people and they're receiving the Holy Ghost. And he says, hey guys, here's a bunch of money. Let me have that same thing. And Paul the Apostle looks at him and he says, may your money perish with you. What he literally said is, go to hell. That's what he literally means. May your money perish with you. 
Eternal judgment is coming on you, mister, because you don't have a right attitude. Because even though you got baptized and you went through the motions and the rituals, you don't got the real thing. Make sure you got the real thing. Can you say amen? Because in Luke chapter 18, verse 26 through 27, those who heard Jesus talking about it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, and they're blown away. They say, who then can be saved? But Jesus said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And so I believe because of that statement, it is possible for these folks who fall away that they can be restored. But there's people who fall away who willfully and, and what's the word here? They deliberately and continuously reject Jesus and reject the leading of the Holy Spirit. Continuously and deliberately. There's people in uh, society today, they're on the internet, they're, they're uh, on YouTube, and uh, they used to be Christian leaders, and I don't know their names, and I don't want to because God's dealing with them, I hope, but they're deconstructing their faith. Anybody ever hear that? Deconstructing their faith. They logically are able to convince themselves that God's not real, that Jesus uh, is a, a, a fake and a myth and all that, and uh, they're not only that, they're trying to convince other people. They're deliberately and continuously rejecting Jesus. What a horrible thing. You know, you can, you can ignore God. You can ignore the Holy Spirit. But I believe that God loves us so much that he won't let us go like that. They'll go after the one lost sheep. I believe, and it's, sometimes I pray God don't stop contending with me. In Isaiah, it says, God says, I will not contend with man forever. But I pray, I say, God, contend with me. Please contend with me. Because there's things in our lives that God is still working out. Can you say amen? Well, God, contend with us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, verse, uh, first part of it says, How shall we escape if we neglect? Such a great salvation. Jude, verse 3, he writes, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered for all the which was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend earnestly means to strain. It literally means to strain every nerve. There are times uh, in my life where I'm praying or where I've, I'm seeking God and, I've, and uh, I'm contending because there's something inside of me. I know that I need God more and more and more. Can you say amen? Hallelujah. In chapter 10, verse 29, it says that those that reject Jesus, they have trodden him underfoot and counted his blood as unholy. It's the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. It's the blood of Jesus that has made us holy. Hallelujah. Praise God. But these people have fallen away an entire and willful apostasy. They decided, some reason or other, that's it. I'm done with God. And they go on their way. I've met people like that. And what does it say here? They have fallen away 
It is impossible to restore them again to repentance so they crucified once again the Son of God to their own harm and hold him up to contempt. With men, it's almost impossible to convince these people, but I believe that there is hope that God, Jesus said nothing, or what's impossible with men is possible with God. Goes on in, in verse 7 through 8 with an illustration how many know Jesus, he spoke in parables, the Bible says, and he would uh, use uh, farming and fishing and other things to illustrate a point. And so the writer here in uh, the letter to the Hebrews uses the uh, analogy or the illustration of good soil and bad soil. For the land, in verse 7, or the, the soil that has drunk the rain, which is kind of a funny phrase, <laughs> drunk rain or drunk soil. What it literally means, it has soaked it up and it's saturated. The water just doesn't go on the surface and leave. It's soaked in. I believe this is an illustration of the Word of God. We need to have the Word of God soaked in to our lives. Can you say amen? <clears throat> if the soil or the land drinks in the rain, that often falls on it. Oh, thank God that He often touches our lives, often falls on us. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus says these words, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often, how often, and here's that word often, and this is the reference, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. A picture of apostasy. But thank God that that's not the end of the story. It's Isaiah 57, verse 16a. I will not contend forever, but I believe that we need to ask God to contend with us. Can you say amen? Goes on to say, pardon me to be able to read here, the rain often falls on it, God often deals with us, and it produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated. Now, when I read that, I thought, well, the, the people that are cultivating it, I guess it's for their sake that the crop is produced. But you know, that's not what it says. That's not what it means. According to one commentary I read, it means the owner of the land gets the um, crop, the usefulness out of the land. The owner of the land, not the workers. This, to me, tells me that God, who owns everything, is the one who's supposed to get the glory, to get the honor, but it receives a blessing from God. It's cultivated. Our lives are not our own. Can you say amen? But here's the opposite. What happens is, if, if, there's that little word, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end to be burned. Notice it's near to being cursed, almost there. It's on the verge and it's talking, I believe, about hearts that are unwilling, hearts that are stony, that are hard, that bring up thorns and thistles. You know, all, I'm sure, are familiar with the parable of the soil where Jesus said that some soil 
brings up thorns and thistles, and as the cares of this world chokes out the word, some soil brings forth good 160 and 30 percent. Hallelujah. Worthless. The land is worthless or rejected after being tested. You and I will go through tests. Can you say amen? We will go through tests. But thank God that they're not meant to destroy us. They're meant to produce good things in us. Let's move on to verse 9. Ah, this is our last verse. 9 through 12. The writer says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, hallelujah, we are beloved. Beloved. You guys are beloved. Okay? Whenever you get up in the morning and you walk in the bathroom and you look in the mirror, and even though you might not look so great, tell yourself, I am beloved. <laughs> tell yourself, I am beloved. Doesn't matter what's going on in life, you are beloved. We speak this way, yet in your case, we feel sure of better things. Another translation says we are confident of better things. Another translation says we are persuaded of better things. God has good things in mind for us. Can you say amen? God is not unjust. Things that belong to salvation, better things, either cursed or burned up, better than cursed or burned up. Romans chapter 15, verse 14, Paul writes, he says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness. These are the things that accompany salvation. You and I, the Bible says, are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish and encourage one another. That's you and I. Paul's convinced the writer of Hebrews is convinced. He's persuaded of good things that accompany salvation. You and I are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to encourage one another. Hallelujah. That's good news. goes on in verse 10 to say, God is not unjust, so as to overlook or forget your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Hallelujah. He has promises of rewards. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says these words, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. This is a promise of God that if we'll continue the doing what we know to do and, 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 and sharing the love of Jesus with people, we will see a harvest. We will reap in due season. Continue to do good, and God will bring good. Can you say amen? Hallelujah. We're confident of this. Hallelujah. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness or diligence to have the fruit or the full assurance of hope until the end. This earnestness or diligence is... Uh, echoed in Galatians chapter 1 or no Galatians chapter 6 right after Galatians chapter 9 let us not grow weary in well doing while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart verse 10 says therefore because we will reap therefore as we have opportunity opportunities will arise we have an opportunity this afternoon and this evening praise God we have opportunities every day 
all day long to do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The least you can do is pray for one another. You can call them on the phone. You can text them. You can look them up on Facebook or whatever. Just reach out to people. But at the very least, let's pray for one another. Can you say amen? God is faithful. Hallelujah. And we desire each one of you to show the same diligence to the end, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, keeping in mind the end. We're going to see Jesus someday. God's going to make everything right someday. We're going to have a glorious reunion someday. Keep that in mind. Keep hope alive. There's a song I think is called Keep Hope Alive. Chapter 5, verse 11. The opposite of that is to be dull. But we don't want to do that. We want to keep the, mind, the end in mind that we are going to see Jesus face to face someday. Hallelujah. Keep the full assurance. When I first got saved, and started serving God, I wondered about the full assurance. I doubted, God, am I really saved? Am I really uh, right with you, God? I, I'm, I mean, I've got problems. I'm doing stupid things sometimes. God, am I really saved? But here, the Word of God says that we have full assurance of hope. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, and you're living for God, if it's not, un, it's not a result of our own efforts, the only effort we have is to Continue to try and pay attention and be obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Maintain our relationship with God as much as we can. But it depends that God has reached out and touched us. Can you say amen? Hallelujah. The full assurance of hope. Verse 12, and we'll end with this, so that you may not be sluggish or dull, but imitators. Now, he's not saying to be making fun of people by imitating them. Everybody, there's a lot of comedy uh, routines that they, they imitate people, but they're making fun of them. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to imitate their, um, their, their, their lifestyle. Their, in chapter 11, by the way, uh, we all know about the Hall of Faith. These are the people we're supposed to imitate, people that we know. <laughs> I remember when I first started serving God, one day I noticed I'm walking like my pastor. He had flat feet and he walked kind of like this. And I was walking like him. I guess I was imitating him unconsciously until I noticed, oh, what? that's, we're called to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises because they're not going to get them all without us. We're going to get them all the promises together. We have an inheritance stored up for us, waiting for us, Hallelujah, that will be revealed to the glory of God and to the detriment of the unbelievers. And this is what we need to keep in mind so that we can keep on keeping on and continue to the end through faith and patience. I don't know about you, but uh, there's times that I get impatient. I want it now, <laughs> you know, but God doesn't always work that way. Sometimes we have to wait. You know, like <laughs> we've been here, what, eight years now, and they're still staying away by the thousands. <laughs> Through faith and patience, we inherit the kingdom. We inherit the promises of God. God has got wonderful promises for us. Can you say amen? 
unsaved loved ones are going to come to Jesus. We'll see them saved. Praise God. Well, hallelujah. Let's close in prayer this morning.